Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel with me, Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover your Miami Marlins every day in our own way. Please subscribe to Fish Stripes wherever you get your pods so that you don't miss a single episode. Leave a rating and review wherever applicable. In addition to the official show, this is where you'll find Fish Stripes Unfiltered. Fishology, what a relief, as well as special installments of our audio offerings covering the fish. We're at a stage of this offseason, past a milestone of the winter meetings, and the state of the team is uh, unacceptable by any standard at this particular stretch of time. Uh, a big reason why the team's reluctance to make moves and pay what is required to make those moves. This episode isn't really about money, it's just about winning. And the Marlins are doubtful to have a good major league team anytime soon, unless they allocate more resources toward player payroll. I'm going to explain exactly why on the other side of the break. Let's lead off with just the facts, because I feel like this has been glossed over a little bit, that the Marlins are not on an island in this respect when it comes to having a low payroll. As it currently stands, projected payroll for 2023 is around $92 million. Now that is significantly up from where it was just this past season, and it's also higher than the Oakland A's, the Baltimore Orioles, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Cincinnati Reds, the Tampa Bay Rays, the Kansas City Royals, even the Cleveland Guardians, all those teams spending less as currently constituted than the Marlins are right now. They have a, a very big arbitration class, you know, salaries that have not been fully determined to this point, but all are projected to go up for n nearly a dozen different players at that stage of their careers. We know Jorge Soler is getting a pay raise, Sandy Alcantara. It all adds up to this point. I put out my roster projection, my way too early opening day roster projection, on Saturday, so many familiar faces, and so you're wondering, you know, um, how exactly is payroll going up? And that's just because a lot of individual players that they had this past season that uh, they haven't done anything with yet, they haven't traded, and in most cases, they didn't really have the opportunity to get rid of them without 
paying out some money, uh, those guys are getting raises. So simply keeping together the team that went 69 and 93 in 2022 is going to be more expensive than it used to be. That being said, uh, the context makes this infuriating to see that this is any sort of standard, that this should be any sort of limit for the Marlins. Five years ago, when ownership transitioned from Jeffrey Loria to Bruce Sherman and Derek Cheater, the payroll during that final year of the Loria era was a franchise record $115 million. And long story short, you would have expected it to grow between then and now. You would expect it to be even higher than that point, than 115 at this point in the quote-unquote rebuild of this team. That's because when Loria was still in charge, they hadn't yet negotiated the terms of their next local TV deal, one that saw their revenue more than double from what it used to be. They didn't have ballpark naming rights. The MLB playoffs had two fewer teams back then. The expansion of the playoffs has led to new and larger-than-ever national TV deals that the Marlins get a slice of because of that. Upcoming, beginning in 2023, there are going to be jersey patch sponsorships that are bringing extra revenue. And probably just as important as anything, something that probably doesn't get referenced enough when we talk about the money in baseball, the eye-popping numbers that players are receiving as free agents especially, is that there's been quite a bit of inflation in the United States just over the past few years. I mean, especially over the last one year in total, Again, going back to the end of the Loria era, October 2017, when Sherman and Jeter took over, the value of $1 back in October 2017 is, in current terms, a dollar and 21 cents. That is according to the Consumer Price Index Inflation Calculator. The, the, the inflation rate has been 21% just in the last five years, $115 million dollars. Back at the end of 2017, let me do the math really quickly. That's the equivalent to $139 million in today's game. Don't give me money. I'll spend it. <laughs> now, the U.S. economy as a whole is not perfectly aligned with what you see in Major League Baseball. There are some crossovers there, of course, and that's the bottom line is, is that you would expect just all things being equal, uh, if the commitment was the same from ownership five years ago that it was right now, then payroll for the Marlins, $139 million instead of what's currently projected in the low 90s. So much more that this team could add in terms of talent if simply there were more dollars and those dollars were being spent proportional to what they used to be under the previous regime. One other thing that we all know, but probably doesn't just get laid out in plain terms as often as it should, is just how awful this product has been for most of its existence, in particular over the last two decades. Marlins have missed the playoffs in 18 of the last 19 seasons. And as you know, the only exception in the last 19 seasons was 2020, the COVID-shortened season, one of the anomalies in all baseball history, let's face it. If that season played out, do we think that 2020 Marlins team would have qualified for the postseason without the help of the variance of fewer games and without the one-time only 16-team playoff field that was available back then? We don't know, but 
I think fair or not, you know, that lone postseason birth didn't quite have the same impact that a postseason birth would have in any other context. In most of those 18 of the last 19 years that they've been on the outside looking in, there have been so few instances where they've even really been in the hunt going into the final days of the season. And that's why, understandably, there have been defections from this fan base through the years. There are people that rooted for the team back then that no longer do, or not with the same vigor that they used to have back then. Outside of wins and losses, unfortunately, in so many individual cases, the greatest players in this franchise's history have been traded when the team still had club control over them. You have so few players that are so that are interwoven with this franchise. Really, Jeff Conan is one of the very few exceptions that proudly identifies with the Marlins in his post-playing days. To, to make that relationship even what it is now, they had to you know put him back on the payroll as an advisor to Sherman. And outside of that, there are just very few others, few alumni that represent the team like that. You, you wrap it all together, and it's been a lousy product. It's been an unpopular product. It's been a product kind of without an identity. And that's unfortunate for Bruce Sherman, but he knew exactly what he was getting into when he got this team. So we, we know the initial step when he took over, you know, five-plus years ago, was to reset, was to install some new values and to just begin building this organization in a way that they thought would be more sustainable than what it used to be. You know, there was nothing to love about the Loria era. The bottom line is that, you know, the Loria era didn't have quite as many, like, depressing lows as this one already does. 16 seasons, 16 full-length seasons under Loria, five of them had 90 losses or more. Under Sherman, it's been five seasons, but only four full seasons. And in all those full-length seasons, they've lost 90-plus games. Four 90-plus loss seasons and four tries after five, only five in the previous 16 full seasons. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you got a point there. And I, I, can, I can't even go against that. You can look at that from a couple different angles that under Loria, uh, the team didn't have the understanding uh, in terms of they didn't identify windows of contention the way that perhaps they should have and that there wasn't quite as much of a cohesive vision as to what they should be doing. They didn't lose 90 plus games, but as I mentioned, they missed the postseason in all but one of those years. There were a lot of instances where they had perhaps an unrealistic expectation of how close they were in that they focused too much on the here and now and not enough on building something steady and consistent. And as a result, their tenure was pretty awful, all things considered. <laughs> Perhaps not as awful as what this one currently is through five plus years. There, It is not normal to have this many seasons of just awful, non-competitive performance. To have so many years, I talked about having only a few exceptions where the team in recent history was alive in the final weeks of the season. Uh, during the Sherman era, in all of these full seasons, they've been out of it by the trade deadline. They've been clear sellers in every single year to this point. Those are months of non-competitive games. 
And that has translated, you could say, to the bottom line of this organization, the financial bottom line. Why haven't they been spending? I think, to be fair, I'm sure there is some reality based in here. They're not going to spend money that they aren't making. And realistically, this is a business. Even the most popular teams, the most fun teams to root for, they operate like cold businesses. They don't put money back into the team that isn't surplus from what they're earning and pocketing themselves. That being said, there has to be some level of satisfaction from Sherman as to how this team is being run. He elevated Caroline O'Connor to president of business operations, as well as several of her top lieutenants now have had continuity in this organization. They haven't made all that many dramatic changes to the way that they run the business side of this operation in recent years, with the exception of Derek Jeter's exit as CEO. But if things were really going that badly, then perhaps you'd be seeing more dramatic changes in the way that this team is marketed and the way that it's being run and the priorities it has from a business perspective. But his actions, you know, the continuity that they do have in business operations would suggest otherwise, that things are generally going in the right direction and all the information we could possibly grasp about the growth of baseball would uh, suggest the same. So we're having this conversation in the shadow of the New York Mets. They, perhaps by the time I finish recording this, they'll have signed somebody else to a long-term $50-plus million deal. They are reaching new heights that have never been reached before in terms of player payroll. In fact, the luxury tax payments on top of the payroll that they're projected to have for 2023... That alone, just the luxury tax payments, the overage tax, is nearly as high as the entire Marlins payroll itself for next season, based on things things that are currently assembled, and with the understanding that the Mets might not be done actually adding more veteran major league players. It's, you're envious of the Mets, the expectation to be fair, is is never to be the Mets. This is a team that even during its highs, it's never really come close to winning the National League East division. And that's, unfortunately, the sport is in a direction where that barely matters anymore. We're at a time where there are three wildcard spots in each league where you can make the postseason without being a dominant regular season team. You can go deep into the postseason without having put together the perfect group. Obviously, the Phillies this past year are Exhibit A in doing so, a team that was never fully well-rounded, but was talented enough to get the job done. And even that example isn't totally relevant. As we've seen this offseason, the Phillies are reaching spending levels that they have not reached before and continuing to add established talent on top of what was already a extremely talented roster. So the Marlins aren't trying to be the Phillies either. Uh, Again, the playoff field is wider than it's been before. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be dominant. You you need to be slightly above average to have a chance of getting into October. As I said, this team has only been there once in the previous 19 years. And the frustration about the team right now is that last year they came nowhere close to reaching their goal and as currently constituted, almost all the 
key players are exactly the same as they were this past year. By my projections, about two-thirds of the opening day roster right now, using players in the organization, would be the same as the opening day roster in 2022. As much as injuries affected this team, some situationally, some bad luck in terms of situational hitting that may even out, perhaps, um, whatever impact a new coaching staff may have, um, whereas the previous one seemed to be a, a liability on the players that they had. Perhaps the right messaging brings out better production from even having some familiar faces. There's no rational way to put yourself in the spot where this group is going to be an above-average major league team. That is not like a realistic outcome for them. If that is something that they aspire to do next year, if that is a message you're trying to send to the fans, then um, nobody is going to believe them. And naturally, that's going to just stoke even more anger and frustration and legitimate concerns as to whether the leadership of this team um, actually knows what they're doing. Going back to the teams that have lower projected payrolls than the Marlins right now, and that includes the Tampa Bay Rays, the Cleveland Guardians. In fact, even last year in 2022, the Guardians spent a lot less than the Marlins did. I'm sure those fan bases, I know that those fan bases are frustrated that their ownership isn't more committed to spending what it takes to build as complete a team as possible. However, those teams on the baseball operations side, we spend a lot of time on business operations. On baseball operations, those teams have earned the benefit of the doubt that their teams are consistently really good. They are the inverse of the Marlins. For the Guardians, almost every year, they have a winning record. The Tampa Bay Rays, in the vast majority of their seasons, same thing as well, without spending on player payroll, because they have put together front office, a player development system that gets results. When they make transactions, more often than not, they come up on the positive end of those trades and they get more value in return than what they send out. And that incrementally improves things. The Marlins could aspire to be like them. They can point to them as evidence that a, a low, an eight-figure payroll can be enough. But at this point, they have not earned the benefit of the doubt. Why is it that the Marlins need to spend more than they're currently projected to do? It's because of those shortcomings with their farm system. The hope was, you know, five years ago that they would acquire enough talent, that they would assemble the right infrastructure to get the most out of those talents, to train those players. We have seen that they have put together a really successful operation when it comes to developing pitchers, and in particular, starting pitchers. So many of these players, whether it's up through the minor leagues or learning as they grow upon reaching the majors, we've seen these arms develop in front of our very eyes, become more complete and more consistent pitchers. And that is something I think you could comfortably say they do better than most other major league organizations. The issue is with everything else, especially on the hitting side, that they have produced so few of their own cheap, controllable young hitters. 
and that is put them in this position where even some of the ones that had the most promise have since graduated to the majors. And by any measure, this farm system just isn't special anymore. I don't know if it ever reached a point where it was truly elite, but it has certainly fallen off from whatever peak that it used to have. By fan graphs, they have the most up-to-date approximation of a farm system ranking. By approximate prospect value, Fangraphs has the Marlins right in the middle of the pack, a tie for 15th in terms of the composite value of their prospects. So much of that is tied up in Yuri Perez alone, their number one guy. And for what it's worth, me personally, in following this farm system as close as I possibly can, there's just such a drop-off between Yuri and every other player in this minor league system. There are nobody else that you can point to and wholeheartedly trust becoming an above average regular. All of them are going to need some things to go right. And perhaps some staff changes that have been made on the player development side are going to bring out better production from these players that to this point have not distinguished themselves as great prospects. I mentioned that because when you're talking about avenues to improve this team between now and opening day. And there is so much time to do it. Believe it or not, although it seems like all the free agents are flying off the board, there are still more players out there that could make a lot of sense for this roster and could significantly improve the team as well. Even though there are opportunities out there, I do not see what that path looks like to being a good team in the near future unless they spend a significant amount of money. They just don't have the prospect capital to trade from to totally overhaul the roster. They can make some significant improvements via trade of young players, but they also cannot risk depleting their farm system. You've heard the rumors again and again about the likelihood of them moving starting pitchers from their major league team in order to address shortcomings on the hitting side. Just to get everybody on the same page, this was one of the very worst offenses in baseball last year. It was one of the worst in Major League history when it comes to hitting left-handed pitching. As a whole, this team just did not make enough contact. They did not hit for quite enough power. They did not show enough plate discipline. And with few exceptions, they didn't even run the bases particularly effectively. And that's why there have been that talk about trading from their starting rotation. The issue is that they don't have quite as much of a surplus in the rotation as you'd love to believe. Now, right now, I did that roster projection, and what I came up with is a starting five of Sandy Alcantara, Jesus Lazardo, Pablo Lopez, Edward Cabrera, Trevor Rogers. That is with Yuri Perez still at AAA, waiting in the wings, finishing off his developments, and there is naturally a lot of optimism that he's going to be great right away whenever that opening comes up. You could say that's your sixth starter, Braxton Garrett. I mean, he was one of the great stories of this past season. He emerged as somebody that, in a lot of teams, he would be in that projected rotation, and he's just an injury away, in my mind, from cracking that in the Marlins' perspective. So that's seven between those. And from there, it's it's a reach. You look at Jake Eater, a great prospect, but one coming back from Tommy John surgery who didn't pitch at all at any minor league level. 
this past season. You have Daniel Castano. He's your classic swing man. He's out of minor league options, so he's probably going to be on the roster one way or the other. They tried Brian Hoeing last year. There are other names, um, and you need to list all the names because five is never enough. It is never going to be about just five starting pitchers. I looked at the recent history, both with the Marlins and Major League Baseball in general, and without fail, almost every single team these days, you need to plan on having your sixth starter being in the rotation for at least a quarter of the season with your sixth guy. In most situations, most individual teams, your seventh starter is going to be relied upon for at least a quarter of the schedule, at least eight starts, let's say. And in some cases, you need significant help from your eighth guy as well. So we went through it. It's a very solid top seven that the Marlins have, one that I think you could comfortably project to be great if they were to keep it all together. But the drop-off from seven to eight is kind of noticeable. And that's where um, you're rolling the dice. You're betting on perhaps... Mel Stoudemire Jr. to work his magic again and make somebody better than we ever thought they could be. But more likely, that is where you're going to see a degradation in the quality of the pitching. This is a Marlins team that I think could afford to trade one of their controllable starting pitchers and you know several of their most significant prospects this offseason. And in doing so, there are scenarios where you acquire a, a Brian Reynolds in one deal, and maybe you get a, I don't know, a Christian Walker in the other deal from the Diamondbacks, and that's and that's probably it. You know, that's probably the realistic best case scenario as to what you could get from just trading prospects and one surplus major league starter. If if you want to plug more holes, if you want to dream even more boldly about acquiring via trade, then you're going to end up giving up uh, pitching that in such a way that it really does come back to hurt the quality of your staff. You are you're robbing Peter to pay Paul once you go even farther than that. Again, this is a team that lost 93 games this past season and to this point has done barely anything. One of the few teams that has not given out a single free agent contract to any major league player this offseason. And I just don't think they're surplus of talent is substantial enough to fix this all via trade. It's going to cost money. And the most direct way is by spending it on free agents. Another creative way is making deals for players that are under, that have underwater contracts. Those with other teams that are being quote unquote overpaid at the moment because of recent struggles and rolling the dice on some of those players in such a way that because of the money that's owed to them, their market value isn't commensurate with their talents and their upside. So they, this Marlins team really doesn't have any history of trading for bad contracts. If they do have obstacles in free agency, and I think it is fair to point out, if there are some free agents that simply do not want to come to the Marlins considering their recent history of struggles, then you need to get more creative. This is a team, just going back to the money, where one reason why the payroll went up from last year to this year, from 2022 to 2023, even without doing much of anything, is because of rising prices for team-controlled players and because they didn't have really any 
substantial free agents of their own hit the market. Now, you look ahead an extra year, Garrett Cooper, Miguel Rojas, Joey Wendell, Dylan Floro, all of them are pending free agents. Jorge Soler has a chance to opt out of his contract. Even if he doesn't, his salary is going to drop by $6 million from $15 million to nine. So that, as combines all those players, you're looking at $24 million for whatever reason. They, they're still dragging their feet on adding money for the 2023 season. There are opportunities to add players on multiple multi-year deals that are backloaded and share more of those obligations towards 2024 and 2025. You know, long-term, the books are relatively clean. You have Sandy Alcantara on there, but he's earning just a fraction of his true worth. You have Avi Garcia on there, and you have, eventually, the payments to the Yankees for Giancarlo Stanton that they've been kicking down the road. But the outlook is, uh, is pretty bright considering where they are right now. It has been in defense of the Marlins. You can point to the Solaire and the Garcia signings. Those were substantial last offseason. In context, that barely made a dent. What I mean is that before they signed those guys, there was barely, there's pretty much nothing on the books before Garcia and Solaire came in. So it is was nice to see last offseason. They make those commitments but even so, you, you look ahead to where they are right now, and I just laid it out. There are only a handful of teams spending less than this team is. Given the market size, given the new revenue that has come in, and adjusting our perspective with the understanding that inflation has changed the worth of a dollar from even where it was a few years ago, um, it's, it's really indefensible for the current projected payroll to be any sort of limit for this Marlins team. They should be willing to spend more, and I think they're in a situation, because of the middling farm system, because of the volatility of pitcher health, even though it feels like they have a good depth right now, and just because the distance they need to go, especially when it comes to hitting, to even give themselves a chance of being a solid team in 2023, Bruce, you need to spend. You need to spend more than you are right now. If you expect this business to prosper long-term, it's only going to do that if this team wins. As intimidating as it could be to look around your division and see the Mets and see the Braves and see the Phillies all doing what they're doing, um, it, it is intimidating, but you need to try. The fan support, I should say, is just not going to grow much until there is some proof of concept on the major league field. There's been, with the exception of that COVID season, there's just been no evidence whatsoever that what this team is doing is effective. And so they have made further changes in the front office, in player developments, on the coaching side, that perhaps can manifest in better outcomes for the players that they have. Uh, in the meantime, it's it's just going to cost money. He's going. Bruce is going to have to spend his way to get this team a chance and to give the fans a reason to believe. Because right now, morale is understandably very, very low. As a reminder, it's still three and a half months until the start of the season. So that is the bright side, is that there's time. There's time for this to change. They're not playing the games right now. 
there are opportunities to improve, and it's going to take a combination of savvy front office maneuvering and simply having more resources to spread around. I've been Eli Sussman on the official show. First episode in a while, still overcoming a little bit of an illness, so I appreciate your patience, and I appreciate you tuning in as we address this topic that I know is heavy on every Marlins fan's mind right now. We have Fish Stripes Live coming up on Wednesday at 7 p.m., and starting every Sunday night for the foreseeable future, we're going to have our Twitter spaces on Fish Stripes, hosted by Grant Kiefer, so check that out on Twitter. If you are a big Twitter person, consider subscribing to us, paid subscription, only $2.99. That gets you priority to speak on the spaces. It gets you special participation on our streams throughout the regular season, and we're always coming up with uh, new perks to support. We used to be called super followers, but they have since rebranded it to subscribers. That's very confusing. Thanks to Elon Musk for totally mixing up that entire structure within a few months of us setting it up. But please consider supporting us over there. But the most important thing is that you consume our content, both on the written side, on the podcast side, bookmark fishstripes.com for daily articles, reporting on, analyzing what's going on with the Miami Marlins. As always, go fish. Go fish.